So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to take a moment to thank the people that have rated or reviewed the podcast in iTunes. I'm pleased to say that we're now up to 17 ratings, so we're slowly creeping up. And they're all five-star, which is um, completely awesome. I especially wanted to thank the listeners who have actually taken the time to write reviews um, since the last episode we recorded. So they are um, a young lady by the name of Mandela Lewis, who is a fourth-year Liverpool vet student, someone who calls themselves fourth-year RVC. And because I'm clever this way, I'm assuming that means that they're a fourth-year RVC student. And uh, Claire Burns, who is a veterinary nurse. Um, I can't read out all of your comments, but they were really lovely and supportive, and I'm very grateful for that. And so, um, thanks very much. And if anyone else can spare a little bit of time to do the same, uh, that would be great. I always say that um, the way that iTunes is set up, the more ratings and reviews we get, the easier it is for other people to uh, find the podcast and therefore to get some free um, education. Okay, so let's get on with our podcast today, and I'm really looking forward to today's episode. It's one of those ones that I've um, wanted to do for some time, and actually one of you, the listeners, um, mentioned it to me quite a few months ago. Um, And we're going to be talking about veterinary ethics and animal welfare in clinical practice. And obviously, um, we're going to hear a little bit more about what, what that means, but these are things that are entirely central and core to our kind of daily activities in clinical practice. So I'm really, really interested to do today's podcast. Um, I'm joined for today's podcast by Martin Whiting, who is, I've put the lecturer, because I think we only have one, um, the lecturer in veterinary ethics and law here at the RVC. So thanks very much for joining me today, Martin. I appreciate it. Um, Martin, before we get into the main part of the podcast, I was wondering if you could give our listeners um, like a summary overview of your professional bio. You don't have to get into your personal bio. It's probably not the appropriate time. Um, But your professional bio, just so that they can have more idea of who they're listening to and basically how to contextualize what you have to say. Okay, thanks very much for inviting me along. Well, um, I suppose I started uh, out of my veterinary career like many of the uh, other students who start just wanting to be a small animal practitioner. I'd seen a lot of things uh, when I was at school and work experience and that, and I just wanted to get out there and, and be a, a practising vet. Um, and I went through vet school here at the RVC, <clears throat> and I was able to intercalate in philosophy at King's College in my third year, because I always had an interest in philosophy. So um, explain to me and the listeners, what does that intercalation mean? Well, involve? <laughs> it, it means you get to take a year off your veterinary studies okay. uh, and study for two nine-week terms at King's College, uh, but, but studying philosophy for, okay. for that year. And it's a, a joint degree with uh, veterinary students, dentists and medical students all looking at the philosophy of science, philosophy of medicine, medical ethics, and things like that. Um, so it's a, quite an intensity. I say it's only two nine-week terms, but there's an awful lot of reading uh, and essay writing that goes with that. But it's a really good opportunity to discuss with uh, students of other professions how they understand their science and their discipline and their regulatory structures and the problems that go with that. Um, and let, let's not go off on a tangent, but <clears throat> did you find that quite different to your vet school experience in terms of, you're saying there's quite a lot of reading, um, and there is quite a lot of reading in, in the science, sciences too, but I guess it's a kind of... Because I, I did social anthropology in my third year as a student at Cambridge. Um, and again, it was a very different experience to what I'd been doing the year before. So did you find it quite different? Or? Yeah, uh, so there is a lot of reading to do for veterinary medicine. 
Um, but in general, when you're going through that reading, every single word has to be memorised, every single fact has to be memorised. You, you get to the end of a page and you're having to cram all that information into your head to understand it. Um, when reading for medical ethics or philosophy, uh, you might have gone through a whole book chapter and there's only one key point mm-hmm. to take away from that whole chapter, but it takes the whole chapter to understand it. So it's a much slower process of understanding. Um, so the, the learning style is very, very different. Yeah. But actually discussion is critical. Yeah. So to try and learn it on your own is almost impossible. You have to discuss, usually in coffee shops or the pub afterwards, but discuss the subject in great detail to fully comprehend what the This is the pub after the gym, right? So you've been to the gym <laughs> and then you go to the pub. Okay. Anyway, look, I interrupted you. So you intercalated in philosophy in yep. your third year yep. at King's College London. And then what happened? So then I came back to the RVC, I completed my veterinary studies, um, and then I moved into uh, an internship uh, at a busy small animal referral centre in Newmarket, Dick White Referrals. Um, so I moved essentially from being a rotation student, clinical student, into another year of rotations as an intern. And it was a fascinating experience because we saw some of the highest level medicine and surgery cases. Uh, and it was a really good opportunity to consolidate all of my clinical understanding from a student into a practical base. Um, so I, I do recommend doing internships if, if you're so inclined. <laughs> Let's not have that conversation. Lots <laughs> of stuff to say about that. Um, <laughs> But, but during that time, I also saw a lot of cases that were referred to the practice um, as VDS cases, uh, cases that had maybe have gone wrong, so the vets are asking for uh, second opinion or, or corrections of things. So I started to see quite a variation of practice that was out there while being at this specialist centre. And then after that, I went into general practice, and again, I saw quite a variation of different standards that was, going, that was um, taking place. And that caused me to question a fair bit um, what is the professional veterinary standard that we should be achieving? Because it's a remarkably difficult thing to, to leave university one day and then be a fully-fledged, fully-practising, mm. uh, like full-licensed vet out there the next, expected to have um, all the clinical knowledge at your fingertips and just, just go ahead and do everything. Mm. So <clears throat> I was struggling to understand how, how we meant to reach that expected standard. And... When things do go wrong, uh, why do they go wrong and how can they be corrected and so on? Uh, And then I was slightly affected by programmes like the Panorama programme, It Shouldn't Happen at a Vet, which, um, you know, kind of shocked me that that things like that were happening in general practice and clients can be unaware of what goes on in this uh, nebulous area out the back of a practice. Mm. Um, So I wanted to come back and study that. And uh, so it's probably inspired from my intercalation year, mixing with the dentists and the medics. Uh, So I wanted to come back and study that a bit further. So I came back to the RVC and undertook some uh, animal welfare studies. I was doing a research project in in canine welfare. Um, And then I wanted to develop the subject of, of veterinary ethics and law, which meant trying to do some further study. Now, there aren't many places that, that offer courses in veterinary ethics and law. In fact, there's almost none. Uh, so I went and studied medical ethics and law at King's. Um, so it's back to King's where I did my intercalation degree. <clears throat> I mixed with the uh, medics and lawyers that were there and some philosophers as well, studying medical ethics and law and a master's degree for, for a year uh, before coming back to the RVC and completing a PhD. So it was quite a busy time. Which um, I should say to the listeners that the reason we had to defer the podcast was because you were finishing your PhD. So that's fantastic that you've got that done. And I managed to pin you down quite soon after that. Well, it, when it's submitted, there's still the viber to go. But. Yeah. Um, I should also say that obviously we have um, the listeners for the podcast are heavily UK based, but there are international people. 
Um, in the responses you gave me, at one point you mentioned the VDS, and in case anyone picked up on that and wondered what it is, basically the Veterinary Defence Society, um, which, Martin, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, but essentially it's a, a paid-for service that provides vets with legal advice, um, professional advice, insurance. insurance, that sort of stuff. Um, and also you mentioned a panorama program, and again, that's a, a BBC program that's been going for a long time, and actually I'm sure a lot of people in the world have heard of BBC Panorama. Anyway, okay, okay, so that's awesome. Um, with that background then, let's move on, and I wanted to start by um, clarifying some terminology. And one of the things I always say on these podcasts is that they're always a little bit selfish because you know I want the audience to learn, but I always learn myself as well, so that's always very cool. So um, can you please expand um, and tell me kind of how you interpret the term veterinary ethics? Mm. Yes. Uh, in in um, relatively succinct, succinct responses. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not often good at succinct. Um, so, so people use the term ethics uh, and morality uh, largely in the same sort of way. Some people have very distinct uh, differences between the terms. Uh, I can't pronounce ours, so I tend to avoid the word moral and stick to ethics. So, so to me, veterinary ethics um, is the system of moral principles, a system of ethical thinking or philosophical thinking um, that applies values and judgments uh, to the practice of veterinary medicine. So, really, it encompasses the practical application of these, these philosophical principles um, into that clinical setting, but it includes things like history and theology and sociology as well. It's not, not purely philosophical. The, the concept of veterinary ethics is not purely philosophical. So it has to combine um, professional ethics, so, so the ways in which a veterinary surgeon or veterinary nurse may behave, professional ethics, what's expected of a professional person, um, and the subject of animal ethics. So we're interested in the subject of our consideration, the animal that's, that's uh, at stake, if you will. So um, you can interpret it as a critical reflection on the provision of veterinary services in support of the profession's responsibilities to animal kind and mankind. Interesting. So um, professional ethics and animal ethics. Um, And I guess that leads me on to ask then, what does animal welfare mean? And is animal welfare and animal ethics... Case. Yeah, was animal <clears throat> ethics about animal welfare, or what? <laughs> and these are these are terms that, that that can sometimes be used interchangeably. And of course, at many times there is a huge overlap when you're considering the ethical principles or professional principles or how one ought to behave. You're going to be using data that comes from animal welfare. So it's probably easier to think of animal welfare as being. Um, an objective science, it's going to be somewhat subjective at times, but, but largely objective science about the experiences of an animal. So we might consider that the effective state of the animal. So um, how happy or sad it is, how much pleasure or pain it's experiencing. So the state the animal's in, in terms of its uh, mental or physical well-being, would be animal welfare. Uh, and ethics would be our value judgments we place on top of that. Okay. So in a legal sense, we might look in the UK at unnecessary suffering as being something we don't allow. So that's under the Animal Welfare Act, we don't allow unnecessary suffering. Um, But that 
it inherently implies there's a form of necessary suffering that is permissible. So the suffering quantity is what animal welfare will look at. It will say how much and to what degree and to what extent and in what manner is this animal suffering. The ethical and legal judgment will be on the necessity of that suffering. Or acceptability, I guess, or not? Acceptability is, is, is all intertwined in that. Um, Let's say uh, you take an animal to a vet and the vet needs to give an injection. There's going to be some level of suffering yeah. in that injection process, be it just the needle going in. If it's a microchip, for example, I've had dogs scream when the microchip goes in, other dogs not notice. Yeah. Um, so there's a level of suffering that goes with that. And the necessity of it, one could argue that from the animal's point of view, a microchip is not necessary. But, but in terms of human society and living with animals and making sure they are well looked after by their owners and so on, a microchip does become a necessity. And so it becomes socially acceptable for this necessity of the suffering that goes with that. Okay, and um, I'm not sure how to summarise that, but I'm going to try. <laughs> so I guess what I want to do is um, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you um, about some clinical scenarios and we'll come on to that. I guess what I want to do is for people to have a kind of succinct one-line strap line, if you like, for what we're talking about in a way. And so this is off the top of my head here, but I guess if I said to you that what we're discussing today is how I, as a clinical staff member, do my job with consideration for my... So with humans... And they be my colleagues, and they be my clients, and they be society at large. And with consideration to the animals, then in some ways may also be my clients or not, depending on whether you want to go there. Um, and consideration for more than just their level of suffering, but their level of happiness and emotional state and all those kinds of other things. So it's kind of a lot of stuff. It's not just about the animals, not just about the people. It's a kind of amalgamation of all of that. <laughs> Does that sound about right? Yep. Okay. It's about as succinct as I can make it as well. <laughs> Excellent. So um, what I want to do for the rest of the podcast was to consider um, some clinical scenarios. And I'm going to ask you to kind of deconstruct them from the point of view of a veterinary ethicist. Um, because I was thinking about this as like, how are we going to cover what is a large area in, you know, 40 minutes to an hour or something? And I think that talking about some scenarios that people will have encountered is probably a good way of trying to do that. Um, but before I do that, what I wanted to ask you was, because I know that, um, like, I don't spend a lot of time in this sort of field of veterinary ethics and animal welfare, if you like, in terms of understanding what's going on. But I know that at times I have encountered suggestions of kind of models or templates that clinical staff could use when they're facing a particular situation to try and kind of help them to structure their thoughts and give them some kind of guidance about how they should think about that situation. So do you know, um, are there any such sort of guidelines, templates, models, tools, whatever we want to call them, that, that clinicians, uh, veterinary surgeons, nurses, etc., can use? Um, and I guess I want to caveat that by saying that, uh, you know, practical and pragmatic that could be used in a clinical scenario rather than something that would involve, you know, like a lot of time that doesn't really fit into <laughs> their... To their lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> certainly. I, it, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it is tricky because there are so many different scenarios that involve vets and different scenarios of animals. Um, one of the big problems is uh, that separates us as, as vets and vet nurses away from human doctors and human nurses is this moral status of the animal in question. 
And um, there's a wonderful study on the socio-zoological scale that, that describes the moral state of an animal as being, one, the species, and, and two, the job that that individual animal has. So when we're considering uh, the moral status and therefore our practical application of ethics to the dog, we would have to understand whether that dog is a pet dog or whether it's uh, a dog in a research lab or it's a stray dog. Because actually the social acceptability of our actions towards it do vary hugely. And when we then consider maybe uh, a pet dog compared to a pet rat, again, the social expectations of a veterinary surgeon's behaviour, veterinary nurse's behaviour, changes ever so slightly. So there's strange nuances related to the species and the job of that species. Mm-hmm. So as a practical vet trying to figure things out with the animal in front of you, you have to understand the context, the social context, the animal and its purpose. Is it naive to not do that and say this is a dog, therefore I perceive it to be a dog and I think about it as a dog and I don't really care what someone else has decided its purpose on the planet is for? Yep. No, I certainly wouldn't say it's naive. I think um, there are two elements which we've already separated out earlier which we need to consider again because one is animal welfare and the other is ethics associated with that, the, the expected conduct. So animal welfare, we can expect to be the same. A dog is just a dog. All dogs are equal when it comes to their experiences of that. Oh, sorry, of, of their own life and their own welfare. The same as cows might all experience the world the same way and so on. Mm. Um, but the socially expected behaviour of the veterinary surgeon onto that animal is different. But the veterinary surgeon and veterinary nurse are obligated, I think, to consider the experiences of that individual animal. So we necessarily have to take out the context of its job to understand its suffering and then reapply the context of its job, if you like, uh, to then help the owner, help the client, help the, the farmer, whoever, to decide what to do next. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, like I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, well, that's sort of what we do, isn't it? And, and you know, stray dogs versus um, owns in inverted comma dogs. I hate that word so much. I try and avoid using it as much as yep. possible. But nonetheless, um, pet carers, I prefer to call them, or pet guardians. I hate pet owners. Anyway, um, but, yeah, absolutely. And you've got the financial issues that yep. are going to impact on your decision-making, all these kinds of things. So, no, I, absolutely, I agree. I think it's... Um, so could we say that you start off by trying to make an assessment that is uh, founded on animal welfare in the first instance, and then you then, as you say, you adapt your thought processes about the scenario you're facing based on you, what you say, I guess people refer to as the job of that animal. I suppose I, I would say the context, just because I don't yep. like the no, word. No, 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 absolutely. But, yep. but I completely understand what yep. you're saying. And, you know, job just... Um, I'm going to be a bit sort of woo-woo about these things, but... Um, no, fine, th- so, that, so that makes sense. No, but, I think the term job actually uh, provides a certain harshness yeah. about the way we consider animals. So a word like job actually, actually makes you stop and think yeah. about how is it we're considering animals differently when, from a dog's point of view, it is just a dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So words like... Like job do sound unnecessarily harsh, but they're meant to be thought-provoking in that sense. No, and I and I completely understand them. Um, I guess what's even interesting, although let's really not go there, is that um, we could start to think about scenarios in which same principles are applied to human beings, right? And yeah. That's another conversation. Yeah. Um, so, in the sense of <clears throat> there's no there's no there's no sort of grading system or anything like that. So if I was a vet in practice and I encountered a trauma dog, let's say dog been hit by a car, and then is there would there be like an algorithm that would start off with is this a pet or is this a stray? No, I think um, 
So, so that's a, the much broader concept, understanding the animal species and, and its job, if you like. Um, then there comes a much uh, smaller context, which is uh, you as the practicing vet in your clinical scenario, um, where you pretty much know that if you're a small animal vet in a, in a, in a practice, you're going to be dealing with people's pets. So you already know the context of the animal that's there before you. You know if you arrive at a farm, these are farm animals in that context. So we can move on a step from there. Um, so we can see the dog in small animal practice, see the dog arrive, and treat it as a pet dog that's in need of some kind of help, and go from that point. And maybe afterwards we have to go, well, what are we going to do about the money? It's a stray. No one's, can someone find the owner? Can someone contact a charity who may be willing to pay for it? Yeah. But, but our primary focus at that stage is here is a dog before us with a welfare issue that we need to address. I think that's interesting. And... and um you know, we're going to talk about a number of scenarios and, and the sort of stray, unhomed, homeless uh, dog, cat, etc. is not one of them. Um, but I think that's interesting because people definitely make decisions about the same species yep. based on whether they are owned in inverted commas or not. Yep. And some of us find that a little bit difficult, but then the pragmatic aspects of finances and kennel yep. space and these things, you know, always come into the discussion. So I think that's really interesting. But let's, um, let's start with our clinical scenarios then. So... Well, should I just explain some frameworks? Yep. If you sure. want. Yep. There, there are a few that have been published, and it's quite, it's quite useful to actually go and read those. Um, probably the main one would be someone uh, by uh, Siobhan Mullen. And Siobhan is uh, the editor of Everyday Ethics that you may read in, in practice. And she has a couple of papers out there that really talk about how to work through a clinical ethics scenario. And they may be looking at the law, looking at the code of conduct. So, so that's transferable to any nation, because every nation will have its own legislation and, mm. and professional ex- expectations. That's and not Is that veterinary-specific, or is it...? It is veterinary-specific, yep. Um, but it's actually translatable into many other contexts. What, what I should say is um, I will get the reference in detail from you so that I can put it in the show notes so that when, people, Absolutely. when the podcast is published they can go and look it up if they want to. Um, and the other thing I would say is that um, at University of Nottingham there's a researcher, Dr Kate Miller, um, who's worked with another one, uh, Ben Mepham, to develop a biomethical atri- a bioethical matrix. Uh, and this matrix can be used to really pick apart in great detail any problem or any ethical dilemma and look at all the raw data in quite an objective way and try and form assessments about it. And, and when we do sort of logical problem solving or, or any try and kind of logic analysis, we've always discussed system one, system two thinking. System one being that very intuitive gut response pattern recognition, if you will, expert reasoning. And system two being the very methodical, analytical, process-driven way of thinking. Um, so, so when I start people off in thinking about ethics, we have to drop out of that pattern recognition, the, the intuition, and go to the systematic approach to it, which takes a long time and it's a very slow process. It's not necessarily that helpful in the clinical scenario in in the room in front of you. Um, So we do have to use our system one, our intuition, a fair bit. Mm. But actually reflection upon that later on and try and work out why we thought the way we did or how we analysed it that way. Um, And that's another great scenario is is M&Ms and morbidity mortality rounds. It's a really good way to actually stop and say this ethical decision was made because of, and then work through all the reasons, logic behind that. I think, um, I know, you know, I've, you know, we've spoke about this a lot in the past to try and, uh, to try and bring some ethical discussions into clinical practice in that sense. But I think um, one of the problems that M&M type scenarios tend to suffer from is that they're kind of, in the experience that I've had of them, which is not great, but 
um, you know, they tend to be very sort of medicine focused. You know, what were the medical decisions made? Were there medical errors? Um, but actually having an ethics based discussion yeah. as well. Yeah. Or instead, <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, and it's so. absolutely essential to start separating out clinical data yeah. from value data. Yeah. They're very, very different things. Yeah. It may be so. We look at a, a geriatric cat, for example. Well, actually, I think that's probably going to come up on the scenarios. Um, we may have an issue of age about that cat, where we as the veterinarian may not offer certain treatments to the client because it's old, and therefore the treatment may become futile because of its age and so on. But actually, the age isn't the disease process. There may be comorbidities associated with age that, that could be confounders, but age itself isn't the problem. And, and we're placing a value judgment on that animal, on that client, of our decision of age and treatment. I think that's really interesting, though, because, um, you know, one of the things that we've had is an ongoing discussion, I think, in veterinary practice is what we should be saying to the pet's carers, right? So <clears throat> there's that kind of model which is, this is why I think what's wrong with your pet, and these are your options, and I'm going to give you every option available, and you decide. And then there's the one that says, here's every option available, and this is what my recommendation is, if you want to know what that is. And then there's the withholding of options, because you've deemed them to not be appropriate for that pet. Uh, and there's different, you know, so it's quite a complicated um, situation, really, where, you know, I think different people approach it in different ways. And in some ways, I get the sense that there might be a bit more of a sort of old school versus younger vet kind of separation as well, where older school people, I don't mean that in a bad sense, I guess I mean older people, not older school people, um, you know, are a bit more inclined to actually offer options and give their recommendations rather than just here are your options and you decide. Um, so I think it's really interesting because we talk about stuff at that kind of superficial level, but we're now looking at it from a, well, that's the whole point of having you here really, from a more <laughs> expert level, and it's really interesting to think about. So, think so about on that, that point, I would certainly... Um, I would want, when I go and see a professional, to receive the options clearly presented to me with all the information. I would need to make a decision, but I'm not paying them to be a walking Wikipedia of information. I want to know their value judgments as well on that. So I want to hear their recommendations that go along with yeah. the options that are available. I may choose to ignore the options or, or other recommendations they make and choose my own, but I want to hear what they as a professional think. And I think that's quite important. Um, I want to say two things. One is, I think Wikipedia has become so internationally established that we don't have to say other similar sites are available anymore. I think we just <laughs> go with Wikipedia. The second thing I was going to say, though, is um, I suppose the downside of offering all options is should the pet's carers then choose the option that you don't think is in the pet's best interest? You have to live with it in a way, and we'll talk about that in a scenario in a minute. And I guess one of the things about saying well, I'm not going to offer this option is because if they then chose it, I don't actually think this is the right option for this pet. I suppose you're making those judgments in your mind about, well, if I say that we could do X and they choose X, then mm -hmm. I think someone's going to suffer more, and therefore I'm not going to offer X. And you know, is, that, is that a conflict between professional ethics and animal ethics? Um I mean, <laughs> in any given situation, there's going to be a whole load of options you can offer. Yeah. Um, the ones that you don't necessarily need to offer are the ones that aren't clinically appropriate. So if a treatment option is going to make an animal worse, then certainly don't offer that. If a treatment op option is not going to make a blindness bit of difference, then that's not something you necessarily need to offer. You need to offer the ones that are in line with our professional ethic, i.e., we're there for the treatment of animals, to improve animal kind and human kind. So 
we have to offer those things that, that could potentially make the animal better. Now, some are going to make the animals potentially better than others, um, so there may be uh, less expensive options that may only provide a minor improvement. There may be less expensive, expensive options that may provide um, a long-term improvement, but it takes a long time to get there. Uh, and there may be incredibly expensive options that are, are perfect. Now, finance comes into it quite a lot as well, and we have to understand the animal in the context of that owner's life, or pet carer's life, if you will. Um, <laughs> Don't so, worry. <laughs> so we can't always just go, this is the gold standard treatment, this is what must be done, and offering anything sub to that is a bad thing. Because actually, so long as we're doing better than nature, if you will, we're doing a good thing for that animal. It may, that animal may have a better uh, outcome if it lived with someone with amazing pet insurance or has just won the lottery. But, but not everyone has the financial resource to look after animals, and we don't have a national system to pay for it. And I don't think there is a public desire for such a thing. But so long as we are ultimately doing what we can to improve the welfare of the animal in front of us, in the context it's living, then we're doing the right thing. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> let's get on with our, um, our first scenario. What I should say at this point is I'm getting the sense that this is going to be one of the podcasts that um, we're going to split into two parts. Okay. So although I didn't say that at the beginning, um, just to give the listeners a heads up at this point that we're probably going to end up splitting this podcast. Because I, I think it's really interesting and I don't want to rush it just because we want to keep within a set time frame. I'd rather, for as long as you're available, um, sure. chat about it, and then we'll probably split it into two parts. Um, so, Mr. Soundman, be aware. Okay, um, so <clears throat> I've chosen a few kind of scenarios that I hope will give our listeners um, a good overview of how you think about veterinary ethics and animal welfare in clinical practice. So the first discussion point is a bit general, but I wondered if you could comment on how we might think about when it is appropriate to consider and indeed recommend euthanasia of a pet animal. And I know that this is quite an open-ended question, but it is going to lead me on to asking you something else um, that I would like to discuss, but I think we need to have this discussion first. <coughs> I can right. give you a few minutes, it's fine. <laughs> okay, um, when to offer euthanasia or when to recommend euthanasia... Um, <coughs> It's an enormously open question. And um, it's, quite, it's quite interesting because why is it... And I assume you're talking about a small animal context here. Yeah, um, I think um, I should say that um, I think out of necessity, and also I don't really have a lot of expertise in equine and production animal farm animal work. So I think, yeah, it's a very good point, actually. We should stress that we're going to be focusing on small animals that are more often kept as pets and I'm not going to be talking about laboratory animals and research animals so this is very much a, a clinical podcast mm. series and much as I'd love to take the can <laughs> yeah. of worms and all of those things but, um, but it's perhaps something to, to <laughs> touch upon because um, when we look at, at the pet population in the UK we might be looking at about 10, 10 million or 12 million dogs uh, I don't quite know, remember how many cats there are but maybe 10 to 12 million dogs and we might be killing, euthanizing a fair number of that, a fair percentage of that each year. And there may be healthy ones, there may be ill ones, and so on. But when we look at the farm population, we're killing approximately 900 million healthy animals per year. And society is kind of okay with that. Well. So the, the, the actual context of, of euthanasia and the killing of maybe healthy animals or unhealthy animals needs to be couched within what we expect from this really unique group of animals we call companion. 
I think that's really interesting, actually, because um, it never sees... And this is going to sound super critical, and it's not meant to be. It's just it never, I never get cease to be amazed. And, you know, I engage quite a lot on social media nowadays. Um, I have a bereavement website, and you know about that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there becomes a real head of steam and emotion and passion and motivation about some things. Mm-hmm. And then absolutely, I mean, that very same species could be suffering, you know, unfathomable amounts of pain 50 miles down the road in a laboratory. And yet the head of steam on that is, does not, it's a kind of really, I think it's so fascinating. And, and on social media, especially you see real passion and this should never be happening. And this animal yep. should never suffer this way, you know, because it's deemed a pet. Yeah. And then just down the road, there are hundreds and thousands, well, millions and billions in the world of exactly the same species, and yet there isn't that passion. I mean, there are, there is by some people, and there's, you know, I guess yeah. I, I would say oh, yeah. probably a very small but growing. There's people are fighting the corner, I guess, a little bit more, but you know, it's a huge thing. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, that point you made is, is just is is absolutely key. Really, it's the same species, but it's the job that they're deemed to have, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so if we bring it back just to the context of the companion animal, uh, and perhaps refine it just to maybe the cat and the dog. It's a nice, easy ones to consider, and we can all readily relate to those. Um, there is something morally repugnant about the worthless killing of animals. So, so the killing of an animal that doesn't have a purpose to it. And, and sometimes that's why people will justify farming or research animals and the amount of death that's associated, because there is a point to it. We need the meat product, and you can't get that without the killing. We need the, the biochemical data, and you can't get that without the killing, and so on. <clears throat> The worthless killing of a moral, uh, sorry, the, the worthless killing of a companion animal uh, is something that society is very uncomfortable with. And I think it's probably it's just because it reflects that these are, uh, in some sense, helpless beings under our care that we have a duty to look after them, and we're just killing them at will. That that seems to be completely wrong. Okay, can I ask you about that actually? Though? Because <clears throat> again, you, you may know the stats better than me, but there are millions of dogs, cats being euthanized in shelters across the world by various means um you know some of those there's a desperate fight to get as many of those possible at home right before they get euthanized and you see all this stuff on social media about x dog has been destined to be killed in three days time and this kind of stuff and then you get the people who claim to be very much animal lovers in inverted commas who continue to breed more of those species to add to the number that don't have homes and so that's an even closer context because it's not the laboratory farm animal research situation. Mm. It's just an excess of animals that cannot be in homes. Yeah. And yet, again, I sometimes struggle with that notion that people that seem to be very much interested in, uh, you know, I'm not sure my terminology through this podcast is brilliant and you can correct me, but in, in animal welfare or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, contribute to that. And you find that a little bit interesting in terms of, well, how does that fit in your head to make sense as well? So, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to rant on these podcasts today. But um, anyway, so let's get back to um, this open-ended question about when is it appropriate yeah. for a pet that lives in a home um, to be, and that's presenting as one of your patients to consider and indeed, you know, recommend if asked um, euthanasia. Yeah. So... Um we need to, as I keep on saying, understand that animal and the context in which it's living and the owner's lifestyle that goes with that. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. That owner may be very caring for that animal, but, but maybe sometimes not have the means or ability to look after it fully. Um, so just pick a few examples. Take a uh, geriatric cat that's now hyperthyroid. 
And an owner who lives on their own with that cat uh, absolutely loves it and dotes on it, um, doesn't have the money to afford surgery or radioactive iodine therapy or anything more advanced, but, but can afford tablets on a regular basis. But they themselves struggle to give those tablets. Now, we're in a situation where that owner really likes that animal, really wants to keep that animal, but doesn't have the means in themselves to be able to provide for its care. So we have a condition in an animal that is perfectly treatable or manageable, but it's in a context of its owner or caregiver who is unable to look after it as someone else may be able to. Is it okay at that point to consider euthanasia? Well, some may say, well, no, you should take that animal off that person and give it to someone who is more capable of looking after it, which is incredibly harsh on the caregiver of that animal for its entire life. That patient, that, that pet, is that person's potential companion, only companion, soulmate, or people have very different attachments to their animal. So we need to understand the relationship between that person and that animal in the context. So euthanasia can happen at a very early stage for some animals and at a very late stage for other animals, depending on that owner context. And do you, um, if we looked at that scenario from the animal's point of view, do you think, well, this is another very open question, and I think we have, we have talked about this before, but do you think that animals have a perception of life and death, by which I mean, in the context you just mentioned, th- this sounds like a really crude way of asking the question, but do you think that cat would prefer to be separated from its lifetime caregiver but still be alive somewhere else or be dead? Or do you think the cat wouldn't really be able to distinguish that scenario and what, how do you view that? Because I guess the, the one thing that we have to consider in that situation is saying, well, we take this cat from this lady and find the cat another home because we either want to euthanize the cat when it's got a disease that's manageable. But we're sort of doing that because we believe that being alive is valuable to that cat? Or is that another one of those, being alive is valuable to us um, and therefore we presume it's in the cat's best interest to stay alive? Do you see what I'm, do you see what I'm yeah, asking? Uh, I think to the cat, being alive with a quality of life is important. Um, I don't think cats can have a, a concept of, uh, you know, this is an unjust society because I'm living with this person and not that person. I'm not going to get the medication I desire. I don't think cats can really extrapolate quite that far. But what that person may be able to do is provide a better quality life than if that cat was wild. So um, at that stage, that cat uh, being diagnosed with hypothyroidism has got a certain level of care going with it that wouldn't have happened in the wild. It has a certain now option to monitor its progress, which wouldn't happen in its wild, and to end the welfare suffering at a point where that animal's quality of life has deteriorated to when it's the owner or caregiver perceives it to be unacceptable, which is not something that would happen in the wild. That animal would just continue to exist until it could no longer feed itself, look after itself, and then would die quite a probably uh, uncomfortable death. Mm. So, as I said before, it seems a very basic way of looking at it, but but we're doing better than nature would. We're doing quite well. Um, We could always be doing better. But so long as we're looking after the welfare of that animal in its context, I don't think we're doing it a disservice. Interesting. Um, so I guess what we're saying again here is that deciding when you think that euthanasia is appropriate, and again, I'm going to keep saying this, but I'm sort of having to generalise for the purposes of this situation, right? Um, when you think euthanasia may be appropriate for an individual animal, 
your decision making about that is um, both in terms of the kind of the welfare of that individual animal, but also again its context in which it is in yep. this life, yep. um, and therefore those things are not separated from each other. Yep. So take the example of. Um uh, a Labrador that's maybe 12 years old. It's getting on a bit. It might be developing arthritis and other conditions that make it slightly less mobile than it used to be. But as a Labrador throughout its whole life, it's wanted to just go and walk after walk, chase balls, chase things, play in the garden. And as arthritis or other things set in, it's unable to express its previous life wishes as it had previously done. It may become discontented. Now, we might sort of set a quality of life uh, end point for that animal much sooner than we would maybe for a laptop maybe it's a um a small shih tzu or something that doesn't necessarily run around quite as much or chase balls and so on it's pretty much just happy and content sitting on someone's lap or the sofa as long as it gets its food and a little bit of access to outside it's okay now if that dog develops very serious arthritis and, and so on and is unable to chase a ball which he never really wanted to do in the first place it's probably less of a problem for that individual dog so that's of the same physical condition happening to two different individuals mm. where the mental state of those individuals is radically different. And um, so, okay, so that's interesting. So I guess what I was going to ask you then was, um, you'll have to remind me, but so we, people talk about the five freedoms, right? Yeah, they do, yeah. Um, and I'm getting the sense from what you're saying is that the five freedoms, there's the five freedoms, but there's also to whom are those five freedoms being applied? Like that individual animal has some bearing. So remind us what the five freedoms are. <laughs> you remember them. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, the five freedoms uh, came about from Fork, the Farm Animal Welfare uh, Council, as it was back then, um, as really a, like a set of guiding principles to consider um, a farm animal in its context. Um, but they never really became legislation. They never became any enforcement tool or anything like that. They were these wonderful concepts to consider about an animal. Mm. Now, they would include things like uh, freedom, or freedom from hunger and things like that. But, but if an animal was never hungry, then it wouldn't ever eat. So, so we do have within us this inherent need to be hungry in order to go and get food. But that, that's really an academic kind of critique of them. Um, what they're meant to do, which is what they've now become in the Animal Welfare Act 2006, under uh, Section 9, this is all about the, the duty and responsibilities of the owner to that animal. And those five freedoms have now been uh, recouched into that mm. framework where it's the duty and responsibility of the owner to provide for those animals in, in the, 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 the context of the five freedoms. So is pain, is pain and discomfort one of them? I, I can't remember this, but... Um... Yeah, it would be, but it, it's too... It's to do what you can to eliminate that. Okay. You know, it, it certainly wouldn't be to cause it. So and to unnecessarily cause it would be one of those unnecessary sufferings. But um, when an animal becomes old and it develops arthritis, pain goes with that, but it's what we can do to alleviate that. We, we may not be able to go 100% alleviation of pain, but, but when we get old, unfortunately, that's not going to happen for us either. So um, <clears throat> this actually leads me nicely, I think, onto the next bit of the reason I wanted to have this euthanasia discussion, um, because I guess what I'm getting from what you've said about this, your Labrador and your Shih Tzu scenarios is that in the Labrador situation, just being able to feel like you've alleviated its pain to some degree, but it still cannot do the things that it used to do 
and enjoy the quality yeah. of life that they used to enjoy. Yeah. And maybe that's not acceptable for the Shih Tzu, the fact that you've alleviated the pain the best you can and it's still living the same life it was, and maybe that is acceptable. So we kind of have to think about it for the individual patients. So what I wanted to do, and actually what I think we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to ask you this and we'll talk about this, and then I think we'll end part one of this podcast there. And then in part two, we'll go on and talk about the other kind of more specific clinical scenarios that we're going to, um, we're going to discuss so what I wanted to do, because I know, again, that you and I talked about this uh, quite a while ago now, but um, I wondered what your thoughts are on this kind of slowly simmering movement um, that's around providing basically sort of more intensive hospice-type um, palliative care to pets at home, where essentially, essentially the intention, as I understand it, is to try and prolong that kind of end-of-life stage um, so whereas they may previously have been euthanized, maybe they can exist at home for another few weeks or whatever it might be, receiving certain types of palliative care. Now, I should say that you know there is a society for this. I think it's, again, very heavily US-based at the moment, but it has crossed the Atlantic. And I, through my bereavement site, have been contacted by people that sort of assume that I would be on board with the whole hospice care idea. And I think there's a conflating there of bereavement, euthanasia, and hospice care, and I have resisted getting into an email discussion because it seems like a very long-winded email discussion. But, but the point is that... Um, and some of those animals have teams, so they have hospice palliative care teams, which is made up of one of the veterinarians in their hospital, a vet tech, a bereavement counsellor. Um, people maybe come round on a daily basis or weekly basis or whatever and administer therapy, reassess the animal talk to the owners on the phone daily and you know there's they're not just it's not necessarily they just say we'll do this and then there's no ongoing care but nonetheless you are sometimes talking about cases take that labrador for example you know that may have escalation in its analgesia to you know pure opioids sometimes they have morphine at home um animals that become incontinent you know there's all these descriptions about how you maintain them keep them clean take care of their toileting habits etc etc um, and your interesting point about the Labrador not being able to exercise the Shih Tzu is maybe not so bothered. But I guess the question is, for that Shih Tzu, for example, if it lost the ability to toilet, if it basically wasn't really mobile, sometimes needing fluid therapy subcutaneously or intravenously, um, you know, I guess the sort of picture you would have of a person in a hospice, but maybe not that early in a hospice, but towards the sort of later stages... Um, I guess your, my question is, what, what is your take on all of that? Because I'm, as I say, I have been approached by people who want me to get behind their idea and especially help kind of bring it to the UK and stuff. And I'm not sure that I'm very comfortable with a lot of that, even though that may seem not intuitive to some of them. Um, and actually before, I know, I know I'm rambling here, but before I let you answer, the other thing I should say is that some of those people have a kind of... Um, euthanasia at any point option basically it's like if at any point we as a team you as the pet carer decide that enough is enough and then we'll go for euthanasia and others are almost trying to push towards a natural death and i've even read you know a report by a veterinarian who let her own cat die a natural death at home and you know sort of was trying to say about the beautiful wonderful experience of a natural death and how people that die in hospitals and hospices and so on sometimes describe in the final few hours you know real kind of joy and they feel you know they feel comfort and you know like it kind of, that it, perhaps it is a really nice experience and i don't say that in a cynical way because i've never been through it so i don't know um but i guess most people would go well that's crazy because you know you've left your cat suffer 
Um, and actually, I very recently had someone who posted on the Facebook page for my bereavement site, you know, that basically <clears throat> she had decided she wasn't going to get her cat any care because she felt that the cat was going to die that day in the next few hours. And she knew when a cat was dying and the cat seemed very, you know, okay and at peace. And she was just going to wait and sit it out. And of course, other people are like, that's ridiculous. That's making that cat suffer. You can't do that. Go to the vet. And I, you know, I didn't get involved in that. But um, so I guess with all of those things in the background, I'm going to be quiet now and let you respond. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so the palliative care movement. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sensing from you that, that your objections to it uh, relate to the actual quality of life of the individual animal. Was can, I, can I say, um, I don't know if I have objections to it, no. but what I would also say is that we do palliative care, right? We all do palliative care. And so that's a given, and I suppose I didn't really say that, but I understand that you know, anti-inflammatory painkillers to a laboratory with arthritis yeah. is palliative care. I guess I'm not talking about that, otherwise yeah. people are going to respond to this podcast and go, Shane doesn't think we should do palliative care, and like, I'm not saying that at all. That's just this new movement that I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. sort of struggling to Yeah, But, to but your focus around is, is around um, the quality of life of the individual animal that's going through these, these <clears> final <throat> stages. Um, and I think our professional obligation uh, as, as veterinarians or veterinary nurses has to be our duty to those animals to make sure that their suffering is minim- minimised as much as possible. And um, and I think we are going to struggle to do that unless we bring the owner into that discussion or, or the caregiver into that discussion. Um, because the scenario of the Labrador and the Shih Tzu, the difference between them only works because I gave you the owner's perception of their lifestyles. That The Labrador loves to run around, the Shih Tzu doesn't. Um, and we need to understand the owner's understanding of the animal as well, so what that animal likes to do and enjoys doing. And we need to understand as well, with our medical knowledge and understanding, the, the uh, detailed uh, progress of the disease. So what is that death going to be like for that animal? Because not all deaths are going to be the same. Some are going to be very slow, drawn out, painful, uh, any, well, potentially excruciating. Maybe um, they're going to suffocate in certain ways due to maybe heart conditions or whatever. Or they might be uh, very sudden where you know there's a problem in that animal uh, and it's slowly deteriorating, but its death will occur very, very quickly. So the experience that animal has of its end point um, is going to differ with our medical knowledge, but also with the owner's or caregiver's knowledge of that animal's experience. So we need to take both those into consideration. The kind of hospice like uh, palliative care you're talking about, I suppose you're trying to apply to uh, maybe cancer uh, sufferers, um, and there, there is a movement, uh, it is a mainly American-based movement, uh, in, in towards palliative care in hospitals. And it's interesting that their first conference, and one of the opening talks, was about the, the, the business models that can go with palliative care and how it can be financially viable as a, as a, a hospital model. Um, and I'm sure that's not the reason behind it. And there is an awful lot of money, uh, if you like, to be made from palliative care, but we need, to be insu- we need to be sure that we're using our professional powers correctly. So our professional duty is to the animal. It's not as a money-making organisation. It's a duty to the animal and to the owner. So um, we probably need to really consider the biological and biographical lives of the animals because they can be quite different. Um, it's not saying that euthanasia is the only solution to uh, really severe welfare problems. Let's say you manage to induce uh, a coma into an animal that's experiencing a very negative welfare uh, lifestyle. 
And that, that coma is going to be a terminal one. So you've maybe uh, rendered it completely unconscious. So at that point, it can no longer experience negative welfare. And that coma, or the induction of uh, uh, unconsciousness, will continue until that animal dies a natural death, i.e. From, from starvation or dehydration or whatever else, but, but a natural death, but it's unconscious. Now that animal's biographical life, i.e. what it experiences, um, is akin to euthanasia at the point of induction of unconsciousness because it ceased to exist in its mind mm. at that point. Now, the owner or the caregiver m- may really want uh, for that animal to die a natural death and not to be euthanized. Our primary duty as a, as a vet or vet nurse is to make sure that animal doesn't suffer. So working within the context of the owner, we need to make sure that, that animal does not suffer. So rendering it unconscious may be a way of doing that so that its, it's biographical life hasn't uh, so it ends at that point his biological life may continue for a little while longer until it, it dies its own way so when we're considering animal welfare and our professional duty it's it's the biographical life we really have to look at you're then going to say well actually is it right to render an animal unconscious and just let it die of starvation or dehydration or whatever well that is the, the, the second really difficult question um, it's a very expensive process to keep an animal alive but but dying. It's interesting actually because um, doing, so doing what I do and having you know spent time working at the ICU here, and we certainly have had some cases where <clears throat> unconsciousness has been a comfort to us, mm-hmm. right? But uh, the scenarios that I'm thinking about about the kind of home hospice type care. I mean, these are not unconscious animals, nope. right? These are conscious animals that are often immobile, recumbent, need to be made to eat sometimes tempted to eat and i'm painting a very bleak picture here because i guess i worry that there'll be some cases where i guess me being judgmental about it would think that okay, that's okay but these things tend to have a, a sort of tendency to snowball a bit and once they start down the road um you can end up and i've certainly come across you know i spent i spent quite a lot of time reading stuff online and stuff and sometimes i read an article because the strap line or whatever seemed like it was something that I was going to sort of like, and then as I started to read the detail of it, I've been like, "Yeah, I'm not, I'm not supporting this." Um, so, I mean, I, I think you're right. You know, unconsciousness for sure has a certain amount of comfort to it, and I'm not going to have this debate about whether you can be unconscious and still suffering because I think that takes us um, to, you know, mm. uh, like a, on a physiological, nociceptive kind of sense, but you have no, I guess, co- cognition of that, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, I, I think, I guess I'm a little bit concerned about where the whole palliative care movement will yeah. take us and that some of it may be confounded or sort of being excused by saying that um, those animals want to be with their carers for as long as possible. You could flip that round and say those carers want to be with their pets for as long as possible. Yeah. And are therefore trying to do what they can to yeah. convince themselves that they've made their pets existence as good as it can be at that well, time. Well, let's face myself, most of us with pets would want to be with them as long as possible. Yeah. We do. I mean, that's, they are our companion. They're, they're part of our lives. We do want to be with them as, as long as possible. And sometimes it's incredibly hard to recognise that, that actually that animal isn't going to be with us much longer. And as I said before, it's about doing better than nature could have done. And animals with those kind of chronic conditions that are n- near to death near to the end of their lives, um, would in the wild have taken themselves off and hidden and yeah. not fed themselves, not watered, and yeah. slowly died from dehydration or starvation. Yeah. So are we doing better than nature if we're at home force-feeding it 
or giving it subcut fluids every now and again because we're actually prolonging yeah. that animal's experience at its end of life yeah. just through sustaining its nutrition, which isn't necessarily the best thing for that individual animal. Ideally, we'd find a way to remove the suffering of that animal. Maybe it's chronic pain. Um, maybe there's other conditions that make it feel very, very uncomfortable, unwell, um, and it stops eating. Now, if we can al- alleviate that chronic pain and continue eating, then we haven't necessarily done a bad thing there. We've actually prolonged its life with a, a level of welfare that's not too compromised. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because, um, I mean, I know that we, um, you know, I've in the past and others have sent patients home where we felt that they were going to need a certain level of care at home and the owners needed another night to say goodbye. And, you know, we've been very much taking steps to make sure that they're in touch with us and that, you know, they're going to have euthanasia done the following day, for example. Um, and so, you know, making sure that owners, that carers have the time to say goodbye is obviously very important as well. Mm-hmm. And so some of these cases that we're discussing here about the palliative care, you know, if, if they feel they need five days or something, bring the family round, fly someone from somewhere else, that kind of stuff is one thing, but sort of a kind of drawn out to keep the animal alive, I think it's another discussion. Okay, look, that's awesome. I think what we're going to do is we're going to end um, this podcast here. So this will be the end of part one. And then in the next, um, what's the word I'm looking for, episode, um, we will go on and talk about some of those clinical scenarios that, that I keep promising we're going to touch on. Um, so, Martin, thanks very much for, for this part. And it's been really interesting. And um, as I said to you before we started, I, I've always got stuff to say about these things, even if it's not very clever stuff. So um, I appreciate you listening to me rambling as well. Um, to the listeners, as always, then, do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. Um, and also, as always, let me know if there are any clinical topics you would really like a podcast on. So you can email me directly at schasani at rbc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page and there is an album in there that contains information about the podcast and links to the podcast. Or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SACLINPOD. And um, just a reminder again to please take a moment to rate or review the podcast. Um, I'd really appreciate that. And uh, until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.